welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Back in 1997, Captain Charles Moore was sailing across the Pacific after completing a yacht race when he discovered huge amounts of plastic waste were accumulating in the currents that make up the North Pacific Gyre. This gyre is like a large vortex created by winds moving in different directions at the edges of the system. As Captain Moore explains, plastics are different than anything that had ever entered the ocean before. Plastic polymers do not biodegrade, so... The only thing that makes the plastic get smaller is ultraviolet radiation from the sun and wave action in the ocean. Now, that breaks it into smaller and smaller pieces, but these pieces never go away. Captain Moore and his team at the Algalita Foundation examined ocean samples from the Pacific Garbage Patch and found that they contained twice as much plastic as plankton and that to many sea creatures, this plastic looks like food. That means the bottom of the food web all the way to the top. The zooplankton that we find in our trawls, we can bring them right up on deck and begin dissecting them and find little pieces of plastic fishing line, bits of plastic fragments in their tissue. You can think of these plastic bits as poison pills, uh, moving all the toxics around the marine environment. In this week's show, we'll look at what can be done to improve our relationship with the world's oceans. Plastic pollution is happening everywhere, and the approaches to tackling the problem share many similarities. Today, I'm going to focus on the Pacific Ocean because I live on its doorstep in San Francisco. In future shows, we'll examine the emerging issue of plastic microfibers that come from washing synthetic materials like fleece. Today, we'll drill down on the plastic that starts its life as everyday consumer products like bottles, bags, toys, toothbrushes, lighters, and even flip-flops. Before we talk with people working to clean up or prevent plastic from reaching the Pacific, our number one goal must be to reduce the consumption and manufacturing of plastics. Since the 1950s, we've produced a startling 8.3 billion tons of the stuff. Most of this plastic went to make single-use disposable products. In fact, only 9% of all this plastic has been recycled. The rest went to waste. One way to reduce plastic consumption is to simply say no when someone offers you a plastic straw to bring your own reusable water bottle or grocery bag. Another approach is to help manufacturers switch from plastic to ocean-friendly materials like recycled paper. All these avenues require motivating the public, and one of the single most galvanizing images of plastic pollution in the oceans was taken by the world-renowned photographer Chris Jordan. The photo was of a Laysan albatross on Midway Island that had died from a stomach full of plastics. Chris, tell us about Midway Island. Midway Island, you might know, is in the very center of the North Pacific Ocean. If you ever see a globe, look at the Pacific Ocean and see how huge it is. It's a quarter of the Earth, 6,000 miles wide, 60 million square miles of open sea. And if you put your finger in the very middle, the furthest away from a continent of anywhere on Earth, 
that's right where Midway Island is. And you would think it, it must be the most incredibly pristine paradise on earth. But the, the, the horrific truth is that the island is covered with the bodies of tens of thousands of dead baby albatrosses whose stomachs are filled with plastic. And by September, the carcasses have decomposed. So what's left on the ground are the skeletons and the feathers of these dead birds. And they're large because they are fledgling albatrosses who have been fed toothbrushes and cigarette lighters and plastic bottle caps and pieces of flip-flop sandals and, uh, and hundreds of other individual shards of plastic unknowingly by their parents and their body, bodies literally fill with plastic until they starve to death and they die of toxicity. And the ground is covered with tens of thousands of them. So you have this kind of eerie sense of this dead body decomposing with this plastic that will last forever. It's reflecting back to us our broken relationship with the living world in this incredibly iconic way. So why are the, the mother and father albatross picking up these pieces of plastic from the ocean and feeding it to their chicks? Albatrosses can't know what plastic is. They, it's just completely outside of their experience and outside of, of their ability to, to know. And there's only been plastic in the ocean in the last 50 years. And for the tens of millions of years before that, all of the creatures that lived in the ocean, their instinct is to trust what the ocean provides. And they have no ability and no need up until now to distinguish what they should eat from what they shouldn't eat. And so for albatrosses, anything that's bite-sized that's in the ocean, they can eat. And what there's more of floating in the oceans now uh, more than anything else, is our plastic junk. The images you captured on Midway Island of the dead albatross with their stomachs filled with plastic bottle caps and plastic toys really helped start the movement to stop marine plastic pollution. Those photographs went way more viral than anything else I'd ever done. I came back from that trip devastated by what I had seen. It wasn't until I returned to the island and met the live birds that I started to find a new perspective, a kind of balance, and realizing that Midway is not only hell, but it's also paradise. And that our world is not only hell. There's not only bad news. There's also the, the mystery and, and the miracle that we're all a part of. And that's really what the Midway Project evolved into and what my film called Albatross is about. It's about standing between these polar opposites of horror and beauty and containing it all. Your new film, Albatross, has been a labor of love. When will it be ready for us to watch? Well, I've been working for eight years on this film, and it's just finished. Actually, I finished it yesterday. Congratulations. I've been saying it's finished for about a year, and then I keep going and making more edits. It faces the plastic issue, but the energy of Albatross is not a sort of like, oh my gosh, a terrible bad news documentary about a horrible phenomenon. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an uplifting love story. And the reason we feel that sadness is because we love that thing. And so that's what grief is. It's the same as love. Grief is not the same as despair or sadness. It's the same as love. It's not an informational documentary. Like it, there's very little narration. 
There's just lots of super beautiful footage, very close up of the birds because they have no fear of humans and tons of gorgeous music. So Chris, how can we see your film? All people have to do is go to the website, which is albatrossthefilm.com, and, uh, and we will send it to you for free. Chris's images helped raise public consciousness around the issue of plastics in the ocean, but there was very little understanding of the scope and scale of the problem. That changed when Jenna Jambeck, a solid waste engineer starting her PhD, decided to look into the sources of waste going into the oceans. Dr. Jambeck is now an associate professor in the College of Engineering at the University of Georgia. Jenna, how did this quest of yours begin? I originally heard about the plastic ending up in our ocean in 2001 when I started my PhD. And at that point in time, I, as an environmental engineer who works on land, I sort of immediately connected it to land. Why is our trash and garbage ending up in the ocean? Um, and so at the time, though, to be quite honest, people, and I was literally told that nobody cared about this issue. So even though no one was interested in plastic pollution in the ocean in 2001, you decided to start exploring the issue. I just heard about it and I just sort of was like, I, I think this is this is really important. And it, it connected my love and passion, honestly, for solid waste management and also my love with the ocean and the fact that our trash should not be ending up in the ocean. Yes, people had gone out and looked in the ocean and found plastic here and there and, you know, found impacts and the, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service had sort of originally started to see plastic and bird colonies and people knew about even midway at that point. But we backed up and said, well, how much is going into the ocean in the first place? And that jump started that research for me, which ended up in that 2015 publication in Science where we made the estimate of how much plastic is ending up in the ocean every year from mismanaged solid waste on land. How did you go about working out how much of our trash ends up in the ocean? So we looked at 192 countries around the world that have a coastline. Um, and then we looked at this 50 kilometer buffer of people. Um, so the population density living near that coastline. And then we looked at how much waste they were creating every day how much of that was plastic, and then how much of that waste was actually mismanaged. And the mismanaged waste was made up of two components. One is inadequately managed waste, and one is litter. Um, inadequately managed waste would be waste that is not managed in a formal system. Um, and this was you can think about like open dumping, um, illegal dumping and things like that. And what we saw the influencing factors are where we have this large population growth and actually really rapid economic growth so that, you know, consumerism and, and folks ability to buy lots of products has grown. However, the, the system to manage the waste that comes from those products, we couldn't keep up with it. And now it's a lot of it is plastic. Um, as opposed to historically, we didn't have a lot of plastic in our waste stream. So it's sort of this perfect storm of this um, population and economic growth and then the percent of plastic in our waste stream. And then it just was leaking out um, in many countries, especially in Southeast Asia. So Jenna, what did your research show? How much plastic pollution is ending up in the ocean each year? Eight million metric tons of plastic. Um, going in from these 192 countries every year. So if you think about all of us standing hand to hand along the entire coastline of the world, each one in front of us would have five grocery bags filled with plastic. 
And then if you kick that into the ocean, that's what's going in um, every year. With business as usual, so with sort of the same trends as we're seeing and and no interventions, um, that that was expected to double uh, or more than double to 17 million metric tons by 2025. How did people react to the conclusions of your research? I mean, 8 million tons of waste is a very large figure. People were shocked. I don't think people had thought about this connection of, you know, the waste on land getting into the ocean. Pretty much everybody agrees that plastic shouldn't be going into our ocean when you really look at um, the impacts that it can have and, and how we're learning more about those almost every day. And so... You know, everybody agrees on that. I think now we're just trying to everyone sort of has some of their own opinion on how you you make sure that doesn't happen or how you at least reduce that. But most everybody agrees that it shouldn't be going into the ocean. So, Jenna, what's your next challenge? So I've actually just become a National Geographic Explorer. Congratulations. Um, That's very cool. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, And actually, they just launched a great campaign yesterday called Planet or Plastic, which really kind of emphasizes the choice that we can make here, mostly us us in the U.S. who have the luxury of these choices of sort of refusing single-use items, right? We have sort of the ability to say, no, I don't think I need that. I, you know, I pick the planet. Jenna's work helped us understand the amount of plastic waste going from our cities into the world's oceans. Jeff Kishner, the founder of the trash app Litterati, gives us a street-level view of litter catalogued by 80,000 smartphone users in 115 countries. I went to talk to Jeff on the streets of Oakland. Jeff, how did Literati begin? I was on a hike with my two little kids in the woods and my daughter, who was four at the time, she noticed this plastic tub of cat litter in a creek and she just looked at me and said, Daddy, that doesn't go there. Like this really innocent, cute comment, which for me was a really eye-opening moment. That was how it all kind of started. So what did you do next, Jeff? Well, to be honest, what happened next was a little bit weird. I took a photograph of a cigarette butt using Instagram. And and just because, like, there was no idea at the time. I just did it. And then I took another photo and another photo. And I noticed a couple things happening to me. The first was that litter suddenly became artistic, right? Simply because of the power of Instagram. And because it was artistic, it therefore became approachable, right? It went from being this blight on the ground that I either A, didn't notice, or B, wanted nothing to do with, to, oh, there's a cool photo opportunity. The second thing that happened was that at the end of a week, I had like 50 photos on my phone and I had picked up every single piece that I'd shot. And I realized, well, wait a minute, I'm kind of keeping a record of the positive impact I'm having on the planet. That's 50 less things that you're going to see or she's going to step on or some bird is going to get tangled up in. That's good, right? So I just started telling people what I was doing. And at the time, all I was doing was using Instagram to photograph individual pieces of litter, add this hashtag Litterati, and then throw out or recycle those items. That one cigarette that was born on Instagram has now turned into a community in 115 countries with a Litterati iOS and Android app. And this community is not only crowdsourced cleaning the planet, but through that process collecting a ton of data. That notion of you're not alone in attacking this problem is the root of what I think Literati is all about. We're a community, right? And all of a sudden, that feeling of overwhelm turns into one of empowerment. And I think that's how we really start to solve this problem from a cultural perspective. That underlying data 
the material types, the brands, the geolocation, and a bunch of other information is how we get a lot smarter about solving the problem. Cleaning up helps you identify what the problem is so that you can hold others accountable. I couldn't agree more. I mean, how do you really solve a problem before you understand it? Right? So our belief is that once you identify the root causes of the problem, you can start to pave a path to the solution. And what do you see trend-wise emerging from the Literati data? Like, what are the... Do you, do you get a chance to kind of step back and look at what's happening? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the numbers are, are pretty scary. So plastic is as big and as bad as everybody thinks. And you'll see, in fact, National Geographic Today came out on the cover with a huge story about, I think the title is, Planet or Plastic? We need more and more people to, to really to battle it because it's bad. And that's what we're seeing with the literati community. What kind of things do you see from other countries? What we say is that cities have unique litter fingerprints. Clearly what you see on the streets of Beijing are different than Boston, right? But even on a block by block level, right? You might see a ton of Starbucks napkins on one block that you don't find just one block over. We're in downtown Oakland, which is actually one of the trash hotspots in the San Francisco Bay. Uh, maybe you can pull out your app and we can take it for a little walk and see, see what we find. I can spot a Wrigley's wrapper from about 25 yards out. This is a packet of Heinz ketchup, but it's probably one that came from McDonald's or Burger King. I'm assuming, just because I've seen a lot of these, this silver coating, this probably came from one of those two brands. So we actually created a taxonomy that we call COM. It stands for Category, Object, Material, Brand, right? And so this would be a single-use plastic, right? The category would be ketchup. The object would be single-use plastic. The material would be this combination of um, aluminum foil and plastic, plastic. Yeah. and the brand would be Heinz. Um, so the way Literati works is very simple. It's an app that anybody can download for free. And when you open it, you simply take a photograph, you add the tag of what that is, and we have a built-in library of tags that you can use as well. A geotag and timestamp are automatically placed, and that's it. That data is shared with the entire Literati community, and then you pick up the item that you photographed. When you look at the Literati data, you can see that there's been a proliferation of disposable plastic products. Our addiction to throwaway items like plastic bags, styrofoam peanuts, plastic cutlery and plastic straws has been met in some countries and cities by legislative action. Bans or fees on single-use plastic items has an immediate impact on their use. When Ireland put a 33-cent fee on plastic bags in 2002, their use went down by 94% in just a few weeks. Attention is now being focused on plastic straws. I caught up with Kara Woodring from Aardvark Straws to get the perspective of someone in the industry. Kara, what's the history of the straw? Marvin Stone, our founder, invented the patent to make a paper straw by winding paper around a pencil. So that was in 1888. Then in the 1960s, you switched to making plastic straws. Today, there are more than 500 million plastic straws used every day in the United States alone. Then, 15 years ago, Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, came to you. Why? He had heard that we had at one point manufactured paper straws. And because of the plastic boom, we had to pretty much put away that side of our business. So he came to us and asked if we would recreate the paper straw. It took about three years to really figure out how to make make the paper stronger, how to how to wind it so that it wouldn't 
break down within two or three hours and they don't leave any aftertaste or funny um, bleeding in a customer's drink. But the main, the main thing, Kara, is that they don't leave a funny aftertaste or bleeding in the ocean, right? Because they, <laughs> they compose down quickly and unlike plastic, they're not swirling around in the Pacific for hundreds of years. Most people switch to a paper straw because they do understand the marine degradability side. And were you surprised when the Queen said in February that Buckingham Palace was going to be getting rid of all their plastic straws? Did you see like an upsurge in orders? It was a great face to the the issue where where she addressed it and we finally got some uh, international press around it. And I do see some huge growth in the UK because of that. Here's a clip from the UK Environment Minister, Michael Gove, who seems to be following Buckingham Palace's lead. And I want to do everything we can to restrict the use of plastic straws. And we're exploring at the moment if we can ban them. Now, there is some concern that EU laws mean that we can't ban straws at the moment. But I'm doing everything I can to ensure that we eliminate this scourge. And I hope to make an announcement shortly. Seattle's plastic straw ban goes into effect in two months. Kara, who else is taking action? Primarily, California and Florida have actually done the implementation of the bans. But many other cities have um, started phase-out programs where in two years they plan on phasing it out. Straws are a great example of how local action can create the momentum for national legislation. Both Britain and Australia have plastic straw bans in the works. In January, Taiwan announced the strictest regulations yet, a blanket ban forbidding all single-use plastic bags, straws, and cups. In the United States, both Hawaii and California are voting soon on straw bans. As effective as banning problem plastic products can be, it doesn't solve the problem because so much more plastic is being created every day. The global plastic binge is set to increase dramatically over the next 10 years. Exxon and Shell are among those who have plowed in more than $180 billion since 2010 into new facilities that will produce yet more plastic. If left unchecked, these new factories will lead to a 40% increase in plastic production in the next decade. Studies suggest that by 2050, there could be more plastic in the sea than fish. California recently adopted a zero trash goal. By 2022, California cities will be responsible for ensuring that no litter goes into any river, lake, or the Pacific Ocean. There are a host of actions that are already being taken from increasing street sweeping to installing trash capture devices. These systems vary in size, but all act to trap litter between the street and the water body. Unfortunately, every year, 2 million tons of plastic waste still enters the ocean from rivers. I met up with Karima Sharif, who a few months ago gave up a career in aerospace engineering to build a solar-powered trash wheel that can collect litter from estuaries before it gets into the ocean. Karima is an avid stand-up paddleboarder. Karima, how many paddle boards do you have? I'm embarrassed to admit that I've got five of them. I have two inflatables, one for waves and two touring boards. So how often do you get out on the bay? Pretty much every day. When I'm paddle boarding, it's usually about one to two hours. Tell us about your experience with trash in the water. 
Oh my God. Well, <clears throat> for one thing, there is a uh, a term that made me really laugh was uh, uh, a lot of the paddle boarders would refer to them as Oakland jellyfish and there would be condoms floating in the water. Mm. And so what we do is we take the handle of our paddle and uh, lift these condoms and put them on the front of the pedal board. And I know that's super disgusting, but that's often something that you see. And sometimes you see floating diapers, um, the switcher suites, which are the uh, ends of the cigarillos. They are floating, and uh, it's disgusting to have to touch the cigarette butts and um, the chip bags. Some of the garbage is industrial large plastic, uh, the size of a couch. And to put that on your paddleboard is challenging, but it's like if we don't pull it out, it's just going to get sucked out right through the Golden Gate and end up in the North Pacific Convergence Zone. So that felt like something but has to be done about this. What does it make you feel and and what did you think about doing as a result? I have an engineering background. I decided to leave that career and focus on what I could do. So my project is called a Mr. Trash Wheel Bay Area and it originated in Baltimore in 2014. Um, A gentleman by the name of Mr. Kinnett designed a wheel that uh, is solar powered and the wheel uh, moves with the tidal flow and water circulates to move the wheel. And in front of it, uh, if you can imagine uh, some googly eyes with uh, a tongue, which is the conveyor belt, and two extending floating booms on each side to sequester the garbage. And the the trash wheel can collect things that are as small as five millimeters. And so they roll up onto this conveyor belt, and the Mr. Trash Wheel eats it up like a monster. And then behind it, there's a dumpster, and all of that stuff kind of falls into the dumpster and then the dumpster's on a barge that gets uh, taken to shore and whenever it's filled up it's empty. In Baltimore since they've uh, put it into place they've collected 450,000 tons of trash. Seems like the first line of defense right is stop people littering and then the second is an estuary because it hasn't broken down you still have a chance to get it before it becomes smaller and smaller pieces. I definitely hear so much enthusiasm in people's voice anytime I tell anybody about the Mr. Trashwheel Bay Area. They're like, oh, this is great. We need to have a clean bay. I'm so excited. And then the other side of it is that, you know, we get $50 in a month. So this afternoon, uh, tell us about the meeting we're going to have. I've been trying to get a meeting with the Port of Oakland since February. We're hopeful that uh, they will be responsive to supporting the Mr. Trashwheel Bay Area project. So we'll see what happens. So how do you think the meeting went? It just makes me cry. For, For them wanting to only do something good for the environment as long as they get credits just infuriated me. And I... I just, it makes my blood boil. I'm, I'm really discouraged. I'm definitely not a quitter, but this is not going to be an easy, an easy route. We've been ignoring the problem too long. And so we'll see what happens next chapter. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so you came home. You've been feeling really down in the dumps, but you sound like you've got good news. 
Oh my goodness, this is such good news. I came home and I opened an envelope and there was a check for $25,000. Oh my God, who from? It's from the VF Foundation. They're the ones that do uh, vans and Timberland and North Face. Wow, this will allow you to start the project. Exactly. This will allow us to do the feasibility report, get our licensing of Mr. Trash Wheel squared away, and just get the ball rolling. So I am beside myself. I was so thrilled for Karima. Now Mr. Trashwheel has a fighting chance of getting built and being able to stop thousands of tons of litter from Oakland going into the Pacific Ocean. But what can we do to clean up the trash that is already in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Recent studies show that more than three quarters of all the trash in the Pacific Convergent Zone is larger than five millimeters in size. Anything smaller is called microplastics. These very small pieces accounted for only 8% of the mass of plastic in the ocean, but made up 94% of the estimated 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic floating in the Pacific. Right next door to where Karima paddleboards every day, a massive project is being built to round up plastic pollution from the middle of the Pacific. It's aptly named the Ocean Cleanup Project. It's the brainchild of Boyan Slat, a 23-year-old Dutchman who at 16 decided he was going to do something to clean up the Pacific garbage patch. When I arrived at the old naval yard in Alameda, there are cranes, forklifts, large pieces of tubing, and engineers getting ready to put a test section of the ocean cleanup device into the water. I meet up with the Ocean Cleanup Project's Juiced Dubois. Juiced. How did Boyan Slat come up with the inspiration for this project? Yeah, so it all started with a young man at the age of 16 called Boyan Slat who uh, was in a vacation in Greece and uh, diving near one of the islands and realizing that he saw more plastic bags than fish. And uh, to him that was a trigger to, to think, how can we clean this up? And he used that as a high school project which was supposed to take two weeks, I think, and it took him a year. And that's when it started to get out of hand. So he, uh, he came up with an idea to passively clean the oceans and rather than go after the plastic, let the plastic come to us uh, using the currents and the winds that move the plastic and concentrate them in these five accumulation zones in the oceanic gyres to basically put in um, a passively moving barrier, like an artificial coast against which, which the plastic can concentrate and then we can come extract it, lift it up, bring it back to shore for recycling. What size pieces will you be able to get? We will be able to get uh, anything over 10 millimeters in size, so that's not the microplastics. And indeed, there's a lot of uh, particles that are microplastic, but if you look at the overall mass, the amount of plastic that is out there, most of it is, uh, is in larger parts. About 90% of the plastic that is out there can be removed with our technology. After it comes back, it's being extended to the real first uh, cleanup system, which will be 2,000 feet in, in length, and which will be put in operation later this summer. Um, and that will just be an operational system to clean the oceans, to bring plastic on shore from the high seas. And then after that, uh, we hope to ramp up to uh, go to the full-size system, which will be more like a mile in length and with a slightly bigger uh, floater. Uh, and of those, we, will, we, we plan to deploy 60 in the North Pacific uh, altogether. How much does this whole project cost? Well, so far we have raised about $40 million and uh, 
that is enough to carry on us through the first year of operation of the first system. Uh, after that, we will need quite a bit more to uh, construct the 60 systems and deploy those and um, uh, run the operations. And what if this criticism from environmental groups that you should be focusing on the upstream, you should be focusing on on you know stopping litter in the first place. They're right. So if you only clean it up, uh, you're not doing the right thing. So you need to do something about the influx of plastic. You have to realize that the big stuff that is out there right now will turn into microplastics eventually. So it's it's like a it's like a ticking time bomb. It's a mine of microplastics that is still there and in a form that we can capture it. Because once it gets small, below five millimeters, so it will be there forever and it will be, yeah, uh, very hard to, uh, if not impossible, to ever collect that again. Do you think you'll be able to get data, mine data from the plastic trash that you bring back to shore to work out who is responsible? We all are responsible. So that is very important to, to realize. We all, as consumers, are responsible. Uh, this is a decision that, that we as, as humans made 60 years ago, we started using plastic and we made some, uh, some pretty big design failures in, in how we deal with it. I mean, plastic is a, a valuable product and uh, using it in one-time packaging and throwing it, throwing it away after we've used it for 10 seconds or less, that is painful, that is, that is wrong and, and we need to, that awareness definitely needs to grow. Thanks to Chris Jordan, Jenna Jambeck, Jeff Kirshner, Kara Woodring, Octavio Lugo, Karima Sharif and Juice Dubois for sharing with us the enormous challenges faced by the ocean because of our addiction to single-use plastic. Each of today's guests are working to do something about it, from helping the public understand where the trash in our oceans comes from, to reducing our demand for things we don't need, to cataloging the litter on our streets, to redesigning products so they no longer are made of plastic to installing grates on city streets that capture the chip bags before they go into the ocean, to building Mr. Trash Wheel himself, to cleaning up the mass of plastic pieces in the gyre itself. There's a lot that can be done. What I took away from today's episode is that we need to stop plastic in its tracks. I was shocked to learn that there are new plastic factories still being built. If we just increase the global recycling rate for plastic from 9% to a mere 50%, we'd never need to make new plastic again. This needs to start by just saying no. No to new plastic straws, no to plastic bags, no to single-use water bottles, no to Nespresso coffee pods, no to plastic knives and forks, no to single-use mustard ketchup and hot sauce packets. We don't need that crap. We can then work with our cities and states to make sure each drain is equipped with trash capture devices and when we do see litter, we can record it on Litterati and then pick it up. Finally, let's help Karima build her trash wheel and support Juiced and Boyan in cleaning up the plastic already at sea. I have links to all these great folks on the page to this week's episode. Also, check out this month's National Geographic, which is on plastic. Next week, we explore the issue of distraction. Why are we so distracted? What is distracting us? And what are we craving distraction from? If you have time, please review our show on Apple's Podship Earth page. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have an excellent plastic-free week. Plastic-free.